Hey everybody, welcome back to Improv Town. As always, I am your host and ambassador, Clayton Mashad. Today you get to hear my conversation with Ben Ramika and Doug Moe. They're both longtime teachers and performers at the UCB in New York. Ben is a longtime member of the weekend team, Airwolf. They both perform together in the Teacher Features show at UCB. And Doug Moe is the recent co-author of the New York Times best-selling book, How to Not Get Shot, and other advice from white people with D.L. Higley. In this episode, Ben and Doug share their perspective about how they think improv has changed over the years and how it's different in 2018, and then they go on to give some great improv advice. All right, as always, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, enjoy it. All right, I'm just going to assume that the levels are pretty good. you want to just test them really quick? Sure. Uh, one, two, three. This is Ben Ramika doing podcasts. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Done. Okay, and so this is my level generally. Let's <laughs> see if that works. One, two, three. Six, seven, eight, ten, five. Yeah, we should be good. Okay, cool. All right, cool. And then you just, you know, push Ben's level down if you need to later. I know, exactly. I can speak so much. We'll just jump right into it. So introduce yourselves again just so we can get your voices. Sure. Okay. Right now? Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, I'm Ben Ramaka. I have been a performer at the UCB for 10 years now. And I teach there as well, all levels. I do a show, an all-faculty show called Teacher Feature with Doug Mo, whose voice you'll hear in a moment. And I'm also on a weekend team there called Airwolf, um, which does two halves, an organic second half, which used to be the Evente form, and is now the Spokane. The first half is an interview format about messed up or fucked up living situations in New York City. Cool. <laughs> uh, and I'm Doug Mo, like Ben uh, introed me. And uh, I'm also at UCB. I started there in 98. <laughs> 20 years. 20 years, I guess. I'm surprised it's only 10 for you, but okay. I mean, I started in 2006. Okay. I flew up. And uh, what about that? And so, yeah, I started there just uh, when the thing started up, basically. Uh, I've been on different Herald teams. I was on, the most famous was Mother, and uh, which was a weekend team. And uh, now I co-host, um, I'm among the co-hosts of Teacher Feature, which is with Ben on uh, Wednesday nights at the UCB East Village. And I teach there as well. I just do, right now I'm just doing 201 and 301 for middle levels, but but I've done the other levels too. It just happens to be those two. You're right also now. a successful author. I'm does. a successful author. People who want to pick up uh, my book, I have a book called Man vs. Child, One Dad's Guide to the Weirdness of Parenting. It's a humor book for, very funny. for dads or moms. Lots of moms like it too. Sure. And then I recently co-authored D.L. Hughley's book, How Not to Get Shot. And other advice from white people, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is just out and uh, is doing real well. Yeah, I've heard um, about it. So, yeah. Cool. So, um, let's just talk about, I guess, each individual, like, how you got into improv. What first, like, fascinated you about about it and, and how you ended up moving to New York and doing it? Oh, yeah. Um, well, I grew up in Vermont and I went to college at the University of Vermont. And then I auditioned for the Actors Studio MFA program at the New School. So, that's what brought me to New York in 2000. So, I got my master's in fine arts, which is You're qualified. a potter, right? I'm a potter, yeah. It's inspired by Ghost. Patrick Swayze is sort of <laughs> who I've always aspired to be. That's a half joke. I really do like Patrick <laughs> yeah, Swayze. He's an incredible see that if you said man, an incredible dancer <laughs> uh, and uh, an actor. And 
a few years afterwards, I discovered UCB. And, and uh, along my way, as UCB was sort of developing in New York City, several people over the years was like, you should do improv. Or even some of my teachers in graduate school were like, you should do comedy, <laughs> which I don't know. <laughs> maybe. I don't know if that's necessarily <laughs> a good thing or a bad thing when you're taking serious method acting classes. But And I think I've told this story before, but there's a man named Brett Christensen. And he was at my graduate program for the first year, and then he dropped out. And then he would come back the next year. And he gave me two pieces of advice in like 2002, 2003, where he said like, hey, Ben, I feel like you'd really like the magnetic fields, the band. And he's like, and, and, um, and I usually take classes at UCB. And I was like, whatever, Brett, whatever, Brett. And then like a couple of years later, out of graduate school, I listened to magnetic fields and I was like, <laughs> this is incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I really do like these guys. And I was like, oh, he also said I should take UCB at the same time somebody else told me. And my best friend from high school, he took classes in Chicago at like IO and Second City. And he was like, you should do this. And so I finally ended up taking a class at, at UCB. It really was like this you know, which is a terrible word, but there was like a synergy between who I was and what was happening. I remember in my one-on-one at UCB feeling like it just really resonated with me. Like I, I've likened it to like, oh, they opened a vein. Like there was a feeling of like, oh, she's like <laughs> trouble. Like where I was like, oh God, I'm addicted. I'm addicted to this. And How old were you in that? I was, I think old on average. I was 28, I think. I mean, it was 12 years ago. Yeah, I was 28. So you can do that. I was like, how old I am? Uh, but I was 28, and I felt like I started later. But then I was assuaged from that feeling later on that there was a bonus to coming to it late, which is like the people in the theater that were older, I think, understood where you were coming from. And I think that helped my path, like, advance. And also I feel like it helped me in my classes because I had a perspective <laughs> on life and an opinion. Like, not I'm not faulting any young improvisers, but sometimes I think they have difficulty attaching themselves to real life or real life situations like I think the older you get the more for example I'm getting a little bit off topic but like <laughs> the older I get and I don't have kids Doug does but there seems to be like a lot of casual infanticide <laughs> young, <laughs> young improvisers <laughs> as one thing like death is treated in like very very light manner sometimes <laughs> I'm like you should slow down and like actually relate to that thing right. and the thing that I love the most about it was you know you're in graduate school and you get to work on sort of like the classics in acting like you get to do the classic classics like Shakespeare, but then you also get to do like the modern classics like you could be doing Chekhov or Shepard or uh, Tennessee Williams, which are great scenes, which are beautiful scenes, and there's a reason they should be shown. But once you're out of graduate school, your friends are writing plays downtown, and they're really <laughs> weird, and they're really bad, or, or e- even a, in a smaller like way, you know, you're reading these great plays, but like if it's Cat on the Hot Tin Roof, like you would per- play Big Daddy, or you would, or rather... If you're a certain type, you wouldn't be cast as Big Daddy or you wouldn't be cast as Cat in that play. But, like, in improv, I can be Big Daddy and I could be Brick or I could be Cat. Like, I could play this incredible female Southern protagonist. And that freedom, I think, was a lot more liberating to be like, oh, I can play anybody? I can do anything? Like, that's awesome. I love that. I love that about improv, that you're not typecast in a way. And then was, I was done from there. And then I sped through the classes and tried to get on a team as much as possible to the annoyance of a lot of people in the community and... Here I am now. I'm still not gone away. (laughs) Awesome. I moved to New York from Boston. I went to BU. And so at BU, I was in Spontaneous Combustion, which was the improv group at the time, which was short form. And there wasn't any sort of an improv scene that I was aware of at the time. I mean, we did a little bit of like, we went to a couple college improv things, but we just weren't connected. It was pre- like not really pre-internet but kind of pre-internet like just barely internet you know what i mean so it's like you didn't have information there were no improv podcasts as an example <laughs> <laughs> but anyway 
And so uh, when I moved to New York, I had really loved improv and I missed doing it. I moved to New York to work in film and I worked in film production and then uh, was like trying to see if there was some improv stuff, but nothing had really, there really wasn't anything that I knew about. Um, there was a group doing uh, like comedy sports. Yeah. Um, the, they also did sketch as the Burt Firshners. Do you remember them? Yeah, barely. And I think I just heard the name. Yeah. This is at New York? Yeah, this is in New York. And there's a few people from that like you'd still recognize on like TV and junk like that. Yeah. And there's Chicago City Limits. Were they uh, Chicago there City Limits were there, but I didn't know them. I mean, I didn't, I never saw them. Yeah. And so, but shortly thereafter, UCB was there and Burn Manhattan, which is a big one. And so at the time, there were classes like Burn Manhattan or UCB, and UCB um, was just sort of... So I went to a school with Jamie Denbo, who's... Um, she was in my improv group in college, and she's like a hilarious comedic actress, and she got into UCB just before me. And we had an aborted, like, hey, maybe we'll get the old group back together moment that was like me and my friend Sharif uh, and Jamie and another dude. And it was just like, no, this isn't going to happen in that way. And so I started taking classes, and this was just before the first their first theater started. And so they had a space at Solo Arts where I'd see ASCAT. And like so, seeing improv back then it was like ASCAT, which was incredible. And um, and for Burn Manhattan, they had a very like organic, like insanely physical style. So both were really inspiring, but the classes were clearer to me <laughs> for UCB. So I started taking classes there. And then it, that was at a time where it was a pretty small community. And also, like, people will say, like, oh, like, anyone who's there gets on a team back then. But that's true to some extent. <laughs> I mean, not everybody did, but, you know, yeah. many did. Yeah. And um, there wasn't, like, an audition process or anything. But also, you weren't performing to anybody. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so it's like you have, like, it wasn't like, oh, anyone can get on a team. And then you've got a full theater of 250 people. Right. Like, you don't. You know, you're on a, like I was saying last night, we had a show that ran on Saturday nights that Matt Besser directed. It ran Saturday nights for a year to nobody, basically. You know what I mean? So it's like, back then, you could fail for a long, long time. Nobody cared. But you'd have the community built and it built. And so who cares about film production except to say that at a certain point, I was, like, getting heavily involved. And I just thought, like, I got to stop. I need, like, a normal day job, day job, just so I can do stuff at night because film production lasts all night. And so I sort of made a little choice to, like, Let's do improv. And eventually that's led to me being sort of a, an actor and so forth. But yeah, that's kind of where I came at it. I wasn't acting major or anything, but I had done a little bit in college. And oh, and then, you know, and then I was on team, 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 whatever. And then that's, and I just stuck around. That's how it happens. When you say, like, when I thought about 20 years, I remember a while ago now, I read somebody else's 20 year post about being 20 years in improv. I forget who, it was a Chicago guy. And I was like, wow, that seems crazy. And I just think, uh, you never know what you're, what you might do for 20 years. <laughs> you, do, you, do not know. you do not know until that happens. And you're like, wow, you know, like, yeah. I just think like, it can feel like listening to someone say, Oh, you did something for 20 years. Like they had a plan that they're going to do something for 20 years. And that's not really no. the case. I don't think <laughs> not that I would, that I don't regret it at all. I just think it's, it seems like a long time to do anything. And, and, but yet it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel most of the time like, yeah, well, I should, like, why stop that? Yeah. <laughs> and you wrote solo shows? Yeah, yeah, I did some sketch shows. I've done some sketch shows and some solo shows and other stuff at UCB. I mean, that's a good thing about UCB is it's not just an improv theater. There's a lot of, I mean, most of the nights are not improv, actually. Yep. So, yeah, I did some sketch shows and um, 
one person chose. And... Cool. Do you guys find that it's becoming any easier to to make a living as as an improviser, or is it, <laughs> or is it still like you try to do improv as much as you can, but then have to find other ways? You to want to take this? Um, I'll take it. I'll take it first. I mean, take it to the we limit. don't get it. We get no money to perform improv. Yes. So that's right. the one thing. There's no such thing, but there there might be such a thing, but it's not improv that I that exists for me. And if you make money at it, that's awesome. I mean, I make money because I teach it, mm-hmm. so that's good. And I have a um, you know I have a family and stuff and like financial responsibilities. So I figured out how to like kind of balance it all. But every you know things change all the time. So like a couple years ago, I had not ever written a book, and that book came about because I had done a stage show and done some blog writing. And so like some of the things that end up making you money are things you would have predicted would. Ben and I both um, auditioned for stuff. We live in New York, which you know, has a lot of stuff filming and whatever. So I do commercials and some little bits on TV and such. But year to year, that's all really different and trend-wise, not so not so great. So I don't know. It doesn't get easier to make money at improv, but no. there was never such a thing for me. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's really an economic model for it. Um, but mostly you teach for people, it, you for mean. people, yeah. <laughs> so for you, theaters, maybe but. for theaters, certainly. But like you can't. But even theaters, I think it's hard to be physically. It might be hard, solid, especially without like a liquor license. But we're very fortunate to be part of like UCB's training center. is pretty well renowned, and you know it's accredited at this point. And then it's a pretty stable thing that you can kind of come in and out of. And even they encourage you in the teacher's manual to say like, "This is a part-time job. It shouldn't be your sole financial sort of the bedrock of your financial." Stability, which is fine, but like you have to find other means. And like, yeah, if you're not booking, like I do voiceovers and TV and commercials, like Doug said. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, when it rains, it pours, and other times it's a drought. <laughs> but yeah, I think the model to make money doing it is outside the performance themselves because we're never going to tip in that direction at this point. And, and whatever, there's lots of worthy things that won't make you money. So Yeah, oh, I don't regret <laughs> it at all. I mean, I, mean I, would, I do it for free, and I would continue to do it for free. The joy it brings me is worth it alone. But I think coaching on the side or teaching if you can is yeah. what makes it money. And then also, like, I fell into a thing a couple of years ago where I was like, teach, this seems to be a model as well. It's like teaching corporate improv, like people. Yeah. yeah. It's become very popular and workshops are really beneficial to people that need to think outside of their own, um, outside of themselves or even to understand how to build an idea with a group or a community building or like a lot of people approach, I think, improv theaters because they want people to be unafraid to like discover new ideas or to support each other or even just for public speaking or and I think sometimes a little, a little money lies in that direction but yeah you know you gotta make it work I somewhere. haven't done much of that I've done only a little of it but that's also because the way I've cobbled everything together I have like my schedule isn't quite as flexible you know like I have to be like well I've you know I don't know I just haven't done as much of it like because at UCB there's Torco and stuff. There's and other corporate. things you can and do. Those do corporate. Money. corporate, and so you yeah. can make some money with that. But only if you're have a kind of flexible thing. Yeah. Okay. Cool. On Wednesday we'll go to DC and we'll be back Thursday. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, hi, honey. Like I'm. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, <laughs> like you, you know, pick up a kid tomorrow. You know, like I have. It's a few it's days before it happens pretty quickly, and I think it's harder with like a stable schedule. It's a young man's game. It's a young man's young game. Person. But some of that stuff is. It's just like with acting stuff you just have to decide if if you have opportunities like that what what things are worth your time and your and to make the money too like because some of that stuff is it's uh in some senses easy money but it's also hard to because i have friends that do some corporate workshop stuff 
and when you talk to them, it's like it can be a drag because because it just depends on the people involved. Some people, it's their best day of the year because they're getting to like do a fun thing with their you know with people they work with, and some people, it's like their opportunity to just like not do work and they hate their work anyway and they've been yeah. forced into this terrible thing. Yeah, or they so, just I don't, don't know. feel it. Like, yeah, yeah I, I don't know. It's just one person in the group who, like, obviously is not having it. It just <laughs> came for, like, the free day off and the food and the booze and we'll sit through seminars. Whereas if someone's, you know, signed up for your eight-week course, like, yeah. and paid a bunch of money, you yeah. assume, and even sometimes you're surprised by that. <laughs> yeah, but, but you know, mostly those people want to be there. Yes. <laughs> occasionally you know but that's but not. specifically I remember when I started off I had been bartending for years and then I got into it and like I sort of tapered off in the bartending until I got on a team by which like you sort of get in the community where people trust you to coach and you get better at coaching and then I moved on to teaching and teaching helped stabilize but along the way I was also fortunate enough to be like doing voiceovers and commercials here and there that like every once in a while helps pay the bill yeah, I mean, actually, like, I didn't mean to get too vague about it, but when I started doing improv, there were, I had no thought that there would be any financial anything ever, and um, I, like I said, I took a day job, essentially, and then I, it was a one of those companies that, like, after September 11th, like, fell apart and died, yeah. not because of anything, except that it was a crap company and every... Not you know, literally, like every, it wasn't, like, yeah, in it wasn't in the towers or yes. something. <laughs> uh, not to ha-ha about that, but, sure. you know, like... But it was, you know, it just, everyone got laid off because that was what was happening. And so that was a, kind of a kick out the door where I was able to go like, okay, cool, I'm on unemployment now, I can audition more. And at that point, I was auditioning for commercials a lot more. And so once, so and I had a little lead time to, to do that. So I coached and at UCB, yeah, you typically would coach and then you might be at, like, might be able to teach. And when I started teaching, it was probably there were less people and it was easier to become a teacher but also I had to be like hey I went on a class you know so yeah. I had to push in a bit I think it's also useful to note too that once you're sort of in the pipeline doing this sort of thing like we should give credit to this theater as I'm sure every theater does and it helps to be obviously in a city like Chicago or Los Angeles or New York but it gives you exposure like I think the fact that we were allowed to do more commercials or audition for TV is directly tied to us developing skills at the theater and us developing relationships and having exposure there. And casting directors seeing it. And casting directors yeah. seeing there, and they would put on, the theater itself will put on, put on like, um, showcases. Showcases for people to show their talent, whether they're sketch writers. And it is. And then your yeah. own work. Like, I mean, I did a couple um, sketch shows and stuff, and those are ones that you like, you know, you some. Back in, back in my day, yeah. uh, you send uh, postcards to casting directors and you try to get people there. And, you know, sometimes they come and. and so creating your own work, regardless of the outcome, is important for your yeah. soul. But also, I also think it's it is true that if you're not on stage, people can't see you. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so being on stage does help. You know, if if casting directors bless their hearts end up going to shows, that's where they might see you. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's it's there's a chicken and egg problem there, but it's like. Yeah, we're we're lucky with UCB. We both built the place into a place where you want to go see people, and um, if you're a casting director looking to find actors for your project, casting directors will sometimes go. I mean, not yeah. to every show or you know, but also you know they have the same life as we do in one way. Like you know, they start as like an assistant who's got their ear to the ground and goes to crazy shows and sees things, and then yeah. they tell their bosses like, oh, you know, so. We benefit, for, like we benefited from those sorts of things too. People that were, 
you know, seeing our shows when nobody knew who we were. Yep. And then they kind of, you help them yep. find the right people for their projects and you are that person and such. Anyway. How much do you think that that affects the, the fact that so many people are looking to to move forward somewhere or is improv as more of a, a means to an end? Do you think that that is something that affects the way that, that a lot of the improv is done in somewhere like New York versus somewhere in Chicago where where I, the people aren't... Uh, I think that it's funny. I think that there is a discernible difference, to be honest. Like, I think that the... And this is just purely from my own observations, but I think that the most eyes are on the theaters in Los Angeles and New York. Much so. It's the same in, the, in sort of like the Broadway world. Like in Chicago, I think the theater scene is much more vibrant and sort of raw and experimental. And I think the theaters there are overall a lot more like experimental in terms of improv because, and this is not, I'm not knocking Chicago, but it's a little bit more insulated. And like I said, it doesn't have as many eyes on it. And I think in the past few years, even the five years, like there has been a shift at UCB and other improv theaters with like people, agents tell their talent to go there. Like, I think that there's been a recognizable difference between like the sort of rawness and experimental type of people that we get. And I know every teacher says this because all of us are like, the weirdos are gone. But like, we've <laughs> seen a lot of weirdos and sometimes maybe we're a little bit blind to that. But I think there is something to be said. Like, I think it has shifted more towards a type A personality that sees taking classes there as, if not just something you can check off on your resume, then like as a means by which you can get eyes on you, which is not totally wrong. But I think the character has shifted in a way that has made it seem, it's become a brand. It's yeah. Become, it's become, yeah, a little bit more established. And when that happens, I think people seek it out, seek it out, and it becomes a little bit more commercialized, and maybe you do lose a little bit of something, a little bit of an edge when that happens. Could be. And, I mean, I don't know uh, from well enough from other cities. Like, I, I don't know Chicago, um, like, what it's like there right now or anything. Um, and then only anecdotally from people I know who've moved from New York to L.A., what they say about LA improv versus here and that opinion really I mean from here I'm like when I'm in New York New York LA like the difference there's there probably is a difference but I don't, I don't know what it is exactly and people taking classes is interesting because at UCB the it's it's been a thing for a long time so in one way it's a hobbyist's thing anyway like like you know if you're like oh I've uh be able to take a yoga class or I'll um join a kickball league or something you might also take an improv class um, the, there are people, I just had a class with a few people that definitely like it, they were there cause yeah, their agents probably told them to do it. They're, um, you know, like a uh, model slash actresses or something. Um, but I also have, um, people that are like retirees and, um, yeah. you know, I think what's been cool about it, part of what's good about becoming an institution, um, is that you, it opens it up to people that like you're not going to get, uh, you know, people that are like a 65 year old, um, woman who like is, she's not going to see the flyer on the cork board outside the co-op on, you know, yes. <laughs> like she, she knows it. Cause she's like, ah, oh, like it's become a it's thing. In time out. It's in like time out. Or like she movie or who knows? Yeah, who yeah. knows what she did. And, um, and so that's kind of cool. And at UCB they've done some work to, um, some diversity work as well. Um, some of that isn't even just like, you know, racial diversity. Some of it is even just age. So or like military service. Or military service. So there's like a little bit of like outreach to communities that, 
you know, you might not might not otherwise find it, but I also think it just helps to be a known entity. Yeah, I think you. I think yeah, there has been more of a diversity of voices. Like there are definitely more Type A people. I think from from my perspective, we're in a hotel room. Also. There's a murder going on next door, but we're not going to stop. We'll just let it happen. We'll we'll clean it up later. Um, I think it's a cleaning going on. Next door. <laughs> oh, is it? That's what you, quote unquote a cleaning. <laughs> quote unquote. Um, a clean. The cleaners are here. Um, so uh, what was my t- my train of thought? Oh, the diversity of voices. Like, because even when I was there, it was mostly overeducated, underemployed, straight white dudes. Which I think is the epidemic of where nerds. Ner- you could say nerds, yeah, but nerds. Yeah, have our, nerds have, our nerds have diversified. But they've diversified, yeah, and, and that's important. We have a lot more voices now, and I think you get different perspectives, and I think there is value value in that. And you do get that at the lower levels. Yeah, you do get that at the lower levels, and then as it goes up, it tends to skew younger. I think overall, but still becoming more diverse. UCB thankfully has made a move in that direction. But also, I guess I also feel like I knocked us a little off topic. Like people pursuing improv as a means to a goal of booking work you know all it takes is amy poehler to get on snl you know i mean like you only need a few things like like a few people to end up on saturday night live before people think that that's the way to do it yeah and they're not totally wrong it's just not that everybody who goes through ucb ends up on snl like right i mean like it's like if you were like well what's the path to snl that you know we i don't know if you've had but i've heard other teachers tell me they've had people say like well, I'm taking this class because I want to be on SNL and it's their 101. Oh, like, yes. I mean, in one way, that's a brave thing to say, but not if you're just deluded. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, no, I, I there's there's discernible bumps. Like, I think Amy bumped the theater up and I think the Broad City Girls really yeah, bumped it Broad up City, as well. Yeah, Broad City, for sure. Because Abby and Alana came up through UCB and, and I remember a 101, second week of a 101, <laughs> and a young woman said to me, like, um, well, I'm here to find my Abby. She said, uh, so that I can have She my thought show. she was in Alana. <laughs> yeah, which is, I guess, if you're like painting yourself in broad strokes, she kind of was, even though I think Alana is singular. No, no one is really like Alana. Um, uh, it's very funny. And I was just like, slow the fuck. Can I swear? Yeah. Slow the fuck down. I was like, I didn't say, and not those words, but I was like, don't, you know, just, you know, just relax and learn and you'll be fine. But I was like, and that's, this was three or four years ago. And that's when I, that was one of the moments where I was like, oh, this place is. People are like eyes on the prize. But it's been a little while. I feel like that's cooled down a little bit. What do you think? I think so too. I think there's a big bump when Broad City came out. And yeah. um, and that was an influx of young uh, comedians that are women, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Just wonderful. But it did feel like it, 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 it did put eyes on the theater. But also, you're right. I also had kids be like, I want to be on SNL. Or- you know, I, this is, I, don't, I do not really want to go off topic here. But I have a suspicion about... Why right now comedy feels a little bit funky? Why? What? Trump. That's it. Like people don't have the time and energy to like take an improv class as much as they did. They don't. They're, I... not, they're not thinking about. Oh, you like, mean remember, attendance in classes? Uh, I'm just talking about like like. Remember, we were talking yesterday about Broad City specifically, and yep. like you know, it's its fifth season so far. But anyway. People, uh, I bet yoga classes are down too. You know what I mean? Like I bet yeah. like all the kind of like recreational makes you feel good stuff. How far did we go? 20 minutes before mentioning yeah. Trump? I, I, that's pretty <laughs> that's good. That's fine. That's probably that's plenty. Pretty, I, yeah. I tried to ignore it. No, I felt that way too. As soon as he was elected a year ago, I felt that overall, that's, there was, we got an email from the head of the school being like, what well, classes have slowed down? I think when yeah. there's an overall pall over like the entire culture society, yeah. I don't know where it was politics line, listen to this. But I think a lot of people with liberal perspectives in major cities felt like it was a misstep. I think that people are less inspired to like go do a fun thing 
or at the very least spend money on themselves in a way that they would go do. Like, yeah. not to focus so much on Broad City, but I mentioned this yesterday, too, is that I heard somewhere someone saying, like, well, it was a pre-Hillary as president show. It was a show where it's like, well, there could very well be there could very well be a woman president. Here we are as very liberated young women, like, in the city having a good time. And then once this sort of, like, misogynistic, classic, old white dude got to be president, Broad City feels like it could have been in a different timeline almost. I think it's yeah. still relevant. People obviously should still watch it because it is inspiration. No, and it's a great show, but it does feel like it was meant for almost a sunnier climb, if you can believe that, like, weirdly, weirdly enough. And you'll look, you'll go to an improv show now, it'll resemble the one you saw three years ago. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it doesn't really change it, but I just think, I don't know, or maybe it's just my personal feeling of, like, how many shows I see or don't, or I don't know. I think it's hard to say, actually. But. It could also just be that it reached a critical mass, like, yeah. felt like improv. Everybody was talking about improv in that. Yeah, I don't know. And, and it could come, it could... I don't know. Yeah, this is this is like really just about feelings more than really yeah. evidence at all. There's no, yeah, there's no. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it raises an interesting question though. So I was reading that Improv Nation book, yeah, uh, which is it. all about just the history of American improv, kind of starting with like Nichols and May, and then going up to the present. And it's it was or Viola Spolin. What's your name? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Starting with like all those the super early Chicago, like, Compass players Compass and stuff. Players, sure, yeah. And then there's kind of, it, they were having this interesting, or the author was laying out this interesting idea about how there was always that crisis of when the politics would change. It, like, redefines how you do comedy. Yes. Like, mm-hmm. pre, pre-JFK, it was very, like, right. you know, critical, cr- you know, the liberals being critical of the government. And then all of a sudden, when you're kind of, when your guy gets in office, how do you change... You know, yeah, political satire and how do you change making fun of, of all the stuff that's going on in the news. And it was interesting to think of, like, and then even talking about Nichols and May and how so much of their joke came because they were from a very, you know, like a pre-sexual revolution yep. generation. Oh, yeah. And just how all of these, you know, we've had kind of all of these different improv moments that were all defined by, cultural shift. you know, kind of whatever the cultural shift yeah. was. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. And so I was wondering, and then we, so then we were talking about how, you know, what effect Trump has had on improv and how improv still, we still are doing improv the same way that we did it before because, I mean, that's, because we're just doing improv <laughs> in the way that you just do improv, you know, right. like, oh, you say something jazz that makes me. Jazz or, yeah. um, also saying that it seems like it's kind of dropped off, dropped off. And I wonder if there, if it's, if there maybe is a different way like maybe the improv hasn't hasn't changed, but what people are oh, look are looking for for comedy hasn't yeah. changed. Well, to circle back a little bit about changed. the differences in Chicago and LA and New York, I think not to I'm not casting blame, but I think audiences are different in those places. Is what I've heard from people in LA and the way okay. that they react. And I think that has to do with a cultural shift and what they think is funny. And I think also hand Wait, in hand stuff about the four hundred five kills in LA. <laughs> And it's all 95 jokes in Boston and Providence. <laughs> um, down to Washington, D.C. Is that where 95 goes? But, yeah. but I also think, in, hand in hand with what the Trump administration is also, the Me Too movement, it's, it's the improv opening up to a much more diverse sort of casts, which is important. And I think because improv is so of the moment, and it can be 
reference humor can be a little bit base, but there is a certain like topical feeling to improv that is different than, than say stand up, which is developed. But all comedy gets dated at a certain point, mm-hmm. unless you see it like as a capsule of what's going on historically and culturally in the moment, or if the comedy is just very, very resonant in a very basic way. Basic, not being like an accusation of negativity, but rather universal. Universal, thank you. Like resonating with a lot of people, then the comedy can like withstand a long time, right? But there's stuff like I was talking about, like Blazing Saddles, AFI <laughs> top 100 comedy. I love Blazing Saddles. Growing up, it would never be made with good reason today because the content. Have you watched it. it recently? I have, I have, okay. and it is and it like held up for you or no. Certain moments, but certain yeah, moments, yeah. it's like, oh, you can't say that, and you shouldn't say that, and yeah, like broad strokes of like making fun of uh, blacks, or like, <laughs> yeah. or like at Dom DeLuise's character at the end, which is a very one dimensional, like queer man, like that's just <laughs> stuff that's like no bueno, you know. Yeah. And um, I think it's funny because we sort of traverse this territory as well. Sure. At least I have personally, where like, you know, I'm I'm a, like an older straight cisgen dude, white dude, like. And I've had to be very open to like learning and being like, what that what that's not funny. I don't do certain stuff anymore as the culture has changed. I ask students sometimes um, or other improvisers that might be like people of color or uh, LGBTQ, like like what what how do I say this? What do I do? Like you have to be open to learning and changing because. Because um, because the, the form changes too, and you want it to be open to everybody to begin with. And also, somebody said to me a long time ago too, is like, there's a smarter joke. There's a smarter joke. There's a smarter joke. And I kind of agree with that. Like, you can make better moves that will support all people and still be funny. That ultimately move towards having a universal funniness or truth. That I think. Look, uh, I'm I'm now I'm just ignoring all you just said to to talk about something I want to talk about. Right? Great. So, like, comedy is in a weird crisis moment in a weird way, right? So, did you watch Nanette? I have not watched Nanette. I didn't want to watch it because I felt like I was given homework to do it. But yeah. I, but I, and my, but that's my wife how wanted I to watch too. it. So, it's helpful. That's when a wife really helps you. Sure. Um, why is that? Get why are you married? married? Okay, that's why we're on this podcast. Yes, I, for are me, you going to propose on this podcast? You put the ben look, Ben's looking for a wife. <laughs> um, anyway, but, uh, but like, it, and I ended up really liking it. But, you know, of course, there was a lot of talk about that. And it, because it's talking about what comedy is, in one way, what comedy is. And so, and then, like, you just look at Twitter. You know, before the election, Twitter was a lot of fun. And, uh, and it got worse and worse. And now it's, like, no fun. But, I mean, yeah. for it's still fun in pieces, but... The like people that used to kind of tell jokes, it's like it's a little bit. It's oh, not, comedians have fully gone so, to talk about politics. So that's like, I mean, I just think it's yeah. in the air right now. It's a it's a tricky moment, and it'll be interesting to see. But perhaps only uh, we'll know in hindsight what it does. Like, I'm curious what leads what. Like, I, I do need to read that book, but like, does uh, does Nichols and May does Nichols and May do they reflect a thing or do they change a thing or is it a pivot moment or what you know say right. they come from a certain like I love those guys like you know they're so funny and so does do they um, they catch fire because they're saying something about they were a new thing to people first watching them you yeah know? and so does that is it just because that or Broad City or any of these things when they catch fire it's because it's people didn't know they needed that yet, or 
or what? You know, I don't know. It's interesting. And then, of course, there's stuff you look back and say, well, I understand why this was funny then, but it's not funny to me now. And because comedy is constantly changing. And some stuff doesn't. Like, I sh- I've, my daughter's 12, so we've watched, you know, we'll watch Buster Keaton and stuff like that, which, of course, is hilarious still. And then I'll show her things like, uh, <laughs> like I showed her some Rodney Dangerfield, you know. Yeah. That He is still really, like, you watch those. I mean, they're all wife jokes, basically. Or, yeah. you know, not all, but, you know, it's like, oh, I get no respect, you know. But it's a universal, they're so well-crafted. Yes. And, and, they're, and it's relentless, and they're so funny. And... I still think they're funny, even though when I've told them in my class, people don't like. <laughs> yeah, it's my I mean, delivery. It, but I, yeah, but comedy shifts, man. Like, believe it or not, <laughs> this is a really obscure reference. But Pat Morita, who was in the Karate Kid, yes. he got his start as stand-up, and okay. you can go back and watch his stand-ups. And he's an Asian American, yeah. And he was on Karate Kid. And I think he was on Happy Days too, yeah. Um, famously, but he started as a stand-up. There's these black and white videos, which is him speaking to American audiences, and he's an American as well. But he's using Asian slurs in his stand-up right. about himself, like, and they're all pun-based. Now, of course, I won't say any of them now. Yeah. But you can find the footage on YouTube of him doing this, and audiences laughing uproariously, and him making fun of himself in like a very racist way. And you yeah, watch yeah. this thing, and you're like, holy shit. It's, this is so weird. Yeah, it's that's so tough. weird, and it's like, it's so... Dated, and you feel so strange about this man, like <laughs> doing this on stage. And like, you almost you hate the audience. You're like, stop! Like, it makes you almost enraged in a way. But that's the way that comedy is a culture. Like, I saw this terrible meme, which is like telling a joke in 2018, and there was a kid going through like a t- play, like laser field with all these lasers. Like, <laughs> what can you say about when? And I did sort of, I, at the moment, I did sort of feel that way. But I think we're in the whatever the expression is, the forest for the trees. Is that there's a lot of clarification that we're going to see, you know, in years to come, like, whether that be, like, people fighting for, like, gender identity and even, like, the pronouns that we're going to use and settle on, or or even, like, the spectrum with which we're judging these men that did sexual assault, like, whatever Al Franken is accused of is not on the same level as what Harvey Weinstein did. And, And because all of this is sort of, like, there's this huge, I think, cultural shift right now that we're just, like I think you said before, like, we can't identify the language or how we're approaching all these things because we're not far enough outside of it yet, if that makes sense. And because of that, I think it's weird that comedy sort of shifted in a way to be like, well, what's next? We're, we're sort of in a fog a little bit to be like. And yeah. I think at that point, you, you almost have to be, not reductive, but go back to like, what is truthful about the relationship on stage? What is funny on this that is universal that people can relate to that does not make anybody in the audience of any race, ethnicity, or persuasion offended. Or like, and again, I come back to this idea, is like, what is a funnier joke? What is a better joke that I could make in this moment? Because there always is a better joke that's not like the joke is fat or the joke <laughs> is gay, which is, I think, reductive and, and cheap. You know what I mean? Yep. And it's not like I'm a saint. Like, you know, eight or ten years ago, I'm sure I played characters. I know I played characters yeah. that were like, I'd be ashamed to do now, you know? But that's part of the self-education, hopefully. Uh. <laughs> I know. Ben's like, I definitely kind of want to keep talking about this. <laughs> I never really thought about that idea of that, like, because improv is so in the moment and usually isn't recorded, stuff that they're, it would be way harder to go back and be like, how has improv comedy changed hmm. over the last 50 years? Whereas you could go back and read 
almost 50 years of Second City sketches or something. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, and you can, oh, this is how sketch comedy has, has changed. Yeah. Well, and there's obviously some similarities. To, but. Yeah, it would be interesting. Well, let's see. Just to think about it, I, know, I wonder if you could go back, like some of the stage shows, like Cage Match gets recorded, right? Or had been? Sure. In, in New York. Like, I bet you could go back a little longer than you'd suspect, maybe five years or something, right? I think Cage Match has been recorded longer than that. But anyway, it would be, it would be I mean, look, I define what's interesting. <laughs> the, the, the term interesting might not quite apply. But like you say, like... From an academic... Yeah, from an academic <laughs> standpoint. But I also wonder, like, this is this goes to, is improv um, in some ways recordable? Like, you know, like... Uh, oh, you, yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, like Which, I wonder the if... The answer is no. The answer is kind of no in that, like, you know, it is a live art form where you're, like, there in the audience. And if you watch it again later, you will still laugh at some of the stuff, but you'll miss why it was... You'll miss a little bit of what was good about it. It's kind of like live theater, like... You can watch a live theater production, right? And on a you know on a video later, yeah. but it's not the same as being in the audience there. And part of the thing about improv is you know when you're sitting in the audience and it's happening right then that it's being created right then. And there's a danger that I think gets erased a little bit by watching it later because you know that it's I don't know you're not there for the the acrobatics or whatever. It's an in joke. I mean, it's an in joke <laughs> that you're sharing. I always think of it as an in joke you're sharing with the audience. But topically, it'd be interesting for sure, academically, I think. It would be neat to go back and be like, well, I mean, I wonder, look, you know what the sad part would be? I would hate for this. I hope this academic doesn't exist because I think he'd be disappointed. He'd go back and uh, he'd go back to my, like, okay, so take my, just my improv history here. We'd go back to um, 18 years ago. And <laughs> instead of, um, instead of a show, and then he'll compare that show to, uh, he has a magic time machine can find a... Uh, Magic Time Machine, also the name of a Herald team. <laughs> <laughs> he can find uh, his, uh, uh, what do you call him, um, his uh, digital uh, video recorder or whatever, and he'll come back and he'll record it and then find something to put it onto beta or whatever. Anyway, <laughs> his digi- he'll get his DigiBeta recorder. Oh, my Anyway, God. whatever. So he records it and he compares it to a show I did last week. And what he'll see probably is it'll be like, okay, in that previous one, there was a reference to Smash Mouth, uh, and in this one, there's Smash a not, not twenty years ago. This one, there's a reference to Smash Mouth, right? Yeah. yeah, it'll be like it'll be some of the same junk, like, and you know, it's interesting. I read um, something wonderful right away, um, yeah. which is another wonderful improv book. Is that and, Jeffrey Sweet? Yeah, yeah. is that his first yeah. name? Yeah, I think so. And um, and so some of the, that's an oral history, so everyone's just talking about. So sometimes they talk about yeah, and I remember. You know, um, what's it, Sever, uh, Severin Darden? Severin Darden? Anyway. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, like, they'll talk about a show that happened. Well, part of what I, the impression that I got from those days was that people were intellectuals in some regards, but this, you know, so it would be like about Kant or something, and they re- replaced that with, uh, you know, Smash Mouth for us. <laughs> and it's, it's in some ways just like a reference game no matter what. Some of what would probably translate in either time is scenes that are not reliant on just the cultural references, but I bet a lot of the material be similar. Well, I, I, I yeah. Why does Nichols and May still make you laugh? Yes. Like, I, you know, or yeah. like all those things, the sketches that work, uh, sketches or improv that works. Um, why does some like some old SNL sketches work and some don't? So like take, take one that's like, some of them are just cause it's John Belushi's hilarious, you know, like, so you can watch it and he's just, still funny when you watch him and some of them it's like 
oh, I kind of get, like, from that time period, this was a thing that was a thing we, people were talking about. Yeah. You know, when I was growing up, we would have, uh, you'd see a sketch uh, with Dukakis, do you remember this? On Saturday Jesus. Night Live. <laughs> uh, you know, sure. and it'd be like, sure. they had him, there was a debate, you know, so it'd be like, and he had a little platform to, because he's short. I mean, that's like the stupidest joke ever. It'd be like, his little platform going yeah. up. But it's also, so it's dumb, but it would still kind of, You'd be like, was Dukakis short? You barely remember who that guy is. And so, but you'd be like, any short guy You wants are to in look, New England. I think a lot of people do. Right? Yeah, maybe Dukakis is. Like, look, anytime I go home, you know, we got to talk about uh, Billy Bulger. So I know. Um, the Bulger brothers. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. That's Some of it's universal, but it'd be interesting. It could be interesting. Like yeah, I mean, I, I have... I have Several thoughts about it. <laughs> you um, asked two people that like to philosophize. Yeah. Like the, the broadest yeah. of comedic history. I'm, I'm going to forget my third point, but I will say two things very quickly. <laughs> One is just that I think the personal journal of an, journey of an improviser goes, I liken it to like when you're a kid, you like sweet, sweet chocolate. And I still love sweet chocolate every once in a while. But as you get older, you like darker chocolate. And I think, and I think, in that respect, <laughs> follow so me, follow me. So dumb. okay, all right. In that respect, like as you continue on your improv journey, you recognize that there's more hilarity in like smallness and nuance. And are you opening up the fridge where we have very, very cheap chocolate that we bought last night? Yes, there's Twix peanut butter. <laughs> Is this the dark chocolate you're? No, to? okay, give me a break. We were drunk. Give me a break. Give me a break. No, that's Kit Kat Is um, is a. Uh, you know, you find more nuance in the smallness of everyday interaction, which I think is more universal. Like, you know, when you're when you're first starting doing improv, you're like, I'm gonna play, you know, I'm gonna play a unicorn that's dancing on the ring of Saturn, and I want to do all this like fairy tale. And there's definitely room for that, but I think as you continue, you're more interested in like, I want to play like a character that's a little bit more nuanced, that's like has to do more with more with real life. And I think that's the journey that ends it ends up being more honest and universal and resonates with people because it's almost smaller, but Larger in a way, if that's making any sense, you know what I mean? <laughs> no, is that confusing? You're choosing to play real people in small moments that reflect a greater universality. I okay. think to people that they can relate to. Sure. The other thing I'll say is that, like in every art form, there's two parts that always are married together for their for art to be successful: and it's structure and content, right? Or form and content. Like if you look at, like, say, when like the French Renaissance started doing like Greek plays, and they went back to those classic structures, but they filled it with their own content. Those were beautiful plays in that moment, like, or even like the more temp, like contemporary references, like Catastrophe on Amazon, right? Like the Rob Delaney show, very, very well done. But it's like a classic sitcom um, structure with a classic hook, but the content is great. You need these two things, right? So improv at its best always has universal content, but what changes over time, I think, sometimes is the form. My to circle all the way back hypothesis would be that the content has always been rich at the best, just like the best content always resembles itself across improv theaters, but the form has changed, but still had rich content. I bet if you looked at the Compass players, I can guarantee you that they played much slower, much more theater, in a much more <laughs> classically theater type way. They were trained better. They were probably trained better in some ways, <laughs> but it was much more presentational. And... At their worst, probably succumb to like references in the moment, just like we do in contemporary <laughs> improv. But overall, I think the speed with which improv is performed and the forms have changed. That's that's the thing. But also, don't you feel? I mean, my understanding. This is just I could be wrong, but my understanding is that UCB it's fast, and it was fast because founders were fast. Sure. 
like from Chicago, like in the family that Besser and Ian were in yeah. was a fast group and known to be fast there. That was their thing. <laughs> but there, but them playing fast there is not as fast as fast teams play now. Yeah, but then they brought ASCAT to New York, and ASCAT was and has, is remains fast, but is but that. So I think like fast is a is a UCB style, and it happens to be that UCB has spread like you know that. Do you I, think? Do you think that? So is it a historical trend of fastness? Is that what you mean, or do you think? Because I think of like, you know, no, I'm not throwing uh, aspersions at all. But um, if you were to say who's who plays faster improv theoretically, is it Magnet or UCB? You UCB. Would, you would say UCB. I think even Magnet people would agree. And Magnet has great improv. So it's but it, you know maybe Magnet is still faster than. Yeah, I don't know. Then earlier I, in Providence, I think Chicago, I, I bet know. I bet Which if you did a time machine, better, but. sorry, a little bit of crosstalk, okay. my fault. But I think if there was a little bit of a time machine, you would see that even those early ASCATs are slower. Like when Airwolf started five or six years ago, my weekend team, like people were like, "You guys play fast! Wow, you move fast!" And I was like, "I don't feel like we're moving that fast." But yeah. if people in the moment can identify that team as moving faster than other teams that are there, right? Then I think you are. It has shifted forward, and I bet. Yeah, and I performed with people in Chicago, and um, we finished a set, and I just did what I would normally do in terms of tag outs <laughs> as other people on the stage, and one of the players there, not and 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 um, they were absolutely right in what they said. Like it was a fast moving show, but um, they said like, "Wow, we're really playing the bongos out there," which is to say that there were a lot of like tags, like, like, da, tags. Da, 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 playing the bongos, and I was like, "Oh," and I was like, oh, "I'm used to sort of playing that way," and 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 I'm not. Uh, I'm not even necessarily saying that it's, that's a good way to play or a right way to play. Like I think it could castrate like good strong scenes if you're moving too quickly. You're kicking the legs out of things that could be developed. Yeah. But yeah, I think the shift has been. I, I, I mean, maybe like when you have a band and like you know you get the other drummer comes in for the day and you're like, okay, let's do that one. It's like t t t t and everyone starts moving faster. Yeah, I don't know. I I'm curious. I, I just know that UCB. As a had uh, started fast and yes. is, and I think that's the preference. And whenever I went and saw ASCAT early days, or whenever I've played an ASCAT with certain players that played from early days, you know, like um, I don't know, some people are some people play fast. So, but fast even for me, like I've I've played with um, people that I'm like, whoa, man, like yeah, I'm getting lost. Yeah, I'm, and. And if I get lost, like, there's people that are like, I, I also have, like, a bit of a soft hypothesis that the city itself reflects the improv. Okay. Like, I authentically believe that. Like, there's a component that's fascinating, <laughs> I think, about Chicago improv, which is, does not happen in New York, which is that Chicago improv has a history of, like, blue-collar people that would come in because of its long time being in the city and the way that reflects is that it has a broad base of people that are blue-collar workers that would come in. UCB never had that aspect of the working class that would come in and take classes to the extent that I think Chicago does. No steel, no dock workers. No dock work, no stevedores. <laughs> like, I just don't think that exists there. And I think to that, to that degree, like, even the, the tempo of the city, even the feel of the city, I think, influences the improv. I think the speed with which New York moves, I think, influences the way that people perform on that stage as well. Probably. And I think that there's an influence in Chicago. These are broad strokes, I understand. Forgive me if you disagree because you're probably right and I'm wrong. But I think there is a Midwest influence as well in Chicago that I think affects the way that people relate to each other, even the content of the improv. Like, really, really, like, there's all this anecdotal evidence of, like, jokes that are told in New York that do not land even in Los Angeles. Like, 
which is not to say to, yeah. to attack the character of audiences or performers in Los Angeles per se, but it's just like there's a feeling of jokes that are, again, in broad jokes, it's like darker jokes land in New York. Darker jokes do not land. Like I did a show in LA when I was visiting to shoot something a few years ago and I was out on stage and there were two players from New York who are like guys that play blue or like will say stuff that's bad. And I'm going out on stage with them, about to walk out on stage. They let, they let me sit in. And they're like, don't make fun of the audience and don't say anything dirty. And these are two people <laughs> that famously say things that are dirty and make fun of the audience. And I looked at them and I, I laughed. I was like, okay, all right, guys, I know. I'm here from New York. And they were like, straight face, like, no, don't do it. Like, it won't work. It won't work. And they were right. And they were right. Anytime anything it was even remotely in that direction, the audience was not having it. For whatever reason, for whatever reason, they want a sunnier show or they're afraid to be they like they get more vitamin D they're just happier out there so it's I think it's honestly like they don't want to <laughs> laugh because they're afraid that someone famous in the audience or someone that could represent <laughs> them in the audience but also, but also you go to LA you walk into a, a place a straightforward sandwich place and they say have you ever is this your first time being here and you're like yeah I know how to order a sandwich <laughs> so I mean like it affects lots of things yeah <laughs> I, <laughs> well, I don't want to get in a fight with that LA, I just got back from LA I was just it's I we know that's the worst <laughs> LA trip uh, I did not get back from LA story. is that what you want me to say <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wonder if I wonder if it's gonna any faster too because teams will try to do longer forms but in, short, in shorter sets you know like like you'll you'll have a 15 minute and you're like we're gonna do a herald and then like yeah, maybe trying to really do a herald in 15 minutes yeah well okay so that's an interesting thought because Ben and I's show on Wednesday nights is a longer set, yeah. But so we don't have that time pressure. But we were both on Herald Night. We understand in UCB New York, you have twenty five minutes, right? Yeah. And, I mean, when I run class shows, I'll tell them like thirty. I'm like going to get you out, basically, right? But yeah. if you have your own indie night, we've been done indie nights, right? Yep. And um, part of the part of the economic model of an indie night is you're trying to get the other teams to watch your team and, you know, vice versa and buy beers the whole night. So uh, you're not going to be like, let's have one group of two people for 80 minutes. You know, you're going to try to Well, get... you want them to bring people too. Right. And so enlarge you... the group. So you, have, uh, right, so you have 24 people in each of the seven <laughs> groups and, uh, and you hope they each bring 60 people <laughs> and they all have 10 minutes. Like that's your ideal economic. That's how you squeeze every dime out of it, but it wouldn't work, but it would be fast. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we, I think, I it, I think there's something show. to that. I think I end up going to an indie show these days, like once or twice a year and I get yeah. dragged there somehow. And I'm like, what am I doing? Well, that's cause you're old, but you I'm know, old, like yeah. when, but when you go, I mean, you know that that's the lifeblood of the whole thing. And like, oh, when, without a doubt. And when we've done it, you know, like, um, remember years ago, Ben and I were, we did one of those things where I was, well, this, hey, look, this is, I'll t- take this into a, a teaching moment or something. Right? Yeah, do it. At the time, I had done Mother for years and years on the weekend. And then um, most of the people were in uh, L.A. now, or at that point, they had moved to L.A. And so we didn't have that slot. And I did another show for a little while at the Magnet. Then I was like, I got to. I just got to put something together. Oh, right. I just got to put something together. You know what I mean? Like, so sometimes just like, I don't know what it's going to be. I just got to like start a thing. And, uh, and so I gathered, uh, Ben here and, um, and the wonderful Sylvia Ozels and, um, and Zach Willis, who is also here this weekend. With men and women. Yeah. With men, uh, women and men. Yeah. Women and men. Sorry. (laughs) 
Sorry. Wow. <laughs> if that isn't the patriarchy. <laughs> Still got that institutionalized misogyny that just sneaks the, in. Wow, you heard how you learned it. He's really, yeah. So anyway, but women and men, and um, and so and that was it, right? The four of us, it's just the four and, of us, and we rehearsed. I'm gonna say four times. Yeah, it was fun. Uh, we had a really four fun rehearsals, and then maybe we did uh, two shows, one or two shows. Yeah. I think two shows, never with quite the full cast. And once Molly Lloyd sat in, yes, um, at an indie show, and it was called Gams. <laughs> it was called Gams. I still like that name, but anyway. Um, <laughs> Oh my gosh! Gams, that's a pretty good improv name, but it's a little, uh, it's a little outside. But whatever. Uh, but it was a the teaching moment part is when you're feeling antsy, start things. Yes. And then what happened with that is, we, um, and we were form specific, and you didn't say that yet. Yes, we had come. We had uh, we worked with Kevin, right? Yeah, and it was Hines. a slacker kind of a tiny town slacker thing. Yeah, we were yeah. experimenting with a form and stuff, but it ended up the project kind of never ended up going anywhere, except that. If not for that project, right? When our show with the when the faculty show came up, Ben and I ended up as co-hosts, yeah. and um, and we knew each other pretty well. I mean, we but we knew each other much more well. Yes, much weller. Yep, that's it. Um, uh, <laughs> bitter um, uh, because we had done this Gams project uh, yeah, just true. before. Isn't and, that funny? Yeah. And if not for that, we might have been like, well, I don't know. But I mean, yeah. maybe it would have worked out anyway. Yeah, I forget why this teaching moment was happening, but. Um, oh, because of indie shows. That's what yes. we're talking about. Oh, yeah. So indie shows are important. You never know. Like, your indie group, look, look at UCB. Um, you don't have to, but if you do, you'll see that a lot of those uh, Herald teams and stuff, there's a core of an indie group. And yeah. indie groups are great. So. Yeah. Anyway, and then those, and then those you guys indie groups that go to Herald Night end up working together, too, and developing shows and moving on. Like... You know, Abby and I, to circle I mean, back to Abby person, and Lana, they were on Secret Promise Circle together. Right. And look, you're making, you're quite, you're poking some slight fun, but like someone coming the, to find their Abby, is that what she said? Yes. She felt she was in Alana. Coming yes. to find your Abby, that's a big part of the thing. Yes. Um, and, yes, yes, yes. you know, that's a big part of what's good about improv is finding your Abby. Yes. I heard a thing on the radio about um, what sport is best for you over time. Oh, I heard that Did too. Did you hear tennis. that too? And they said it's tennis, right? Yes, yeah. And so I have my racket here, man. Would you? No. Uh, but, uh, it was a but I heard thing. this as well. And, God, and why was person. it better? What was the because of the social component? That's why. That's right. That individualized sports like running or swimming, you're not relating to people, and it adds. Was it like nine years onto your life? I think. I could. I don't know if it was nine, but it was know, the most it was years. A, it was. A, it was the most years of any sport for longe- longevity. For Plus, longevity. you can also, I guess, like some sports, it's harder to play when you're. Very old. Yeah. Whereas you go to a tennis court, oh, it's a bag of bones out there playing. I mean, they are just dying <laughs> in the sun. <laughs> but, uh, so a couple uh, bo- uh, bags of bones with lizard skin. Yeah. You know, kicking a ball back and forth. But that, but the social component to any hobby and certainly improv, that's a big deal. Oh, with that, I mean, I always think about like it's just as good as doing crossword puzzles for mental acuity. Yeah, um, it may be, but you say this as someone who what. Crossword puzzles wise, let's just say, uh, as a crossword puzzler, you're a great improviser. Oh, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> because I just downloaded, I had the crossword app, I downloaded on the bus right here. I played cro- I did crosswords for years and I dropped them. I'm excellent. Actually, okay. I'm going right? to be, I know I, I'm going to eat my words. I have a bad feeling. I lie. I will crush a Monday uh, New York Times crossword puzzle in 30 seconds. I'm going to be mad that I said anything. We have a great improviser friend, Patrick Clare, who's a crossword master. I 
but I'm not gonna throw. I when Patrick, I remember when he started doing them. You think you saw? Are you alleged? I'm not gonna take any credit for it. I'm gonna if if you take credit for Patrick Clare being a crossword puzzler. I'm going to tell him. That <laughs> He's he, not here. I mean, I, no, I will not take any credit for it. But I remember when he started doing He's it. He's got an insane streak on Crossroad Puzzles. but The most boring anyway. thing we could talk about. <laughs> well, here's, well, let me just say, look, here's the other. I suspect some of the reason why when you get older, uh, you care more about small interactions is because you become like a little bit of a weirdo person. Like, you know, old, like young people, they got parties to go to and they got to sit on the beach. When you're old... You got to do a crossword puzzle, or you want to haggle over the slice of a ham, you know, or like the slice of a ham, like a little thinner, please. You know, like young people don't care. Just give me the ham. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I think I think the fabric of what you think is funny and your identification of what is funny gets richer and and more nuanced. I think it goes back to like young students like not having. (laughs) Not having a facility with stuff that really happens, and it's not to say that I wasn't that way too, but like, you know, I, I I think. To resonate with an audience again, for there has to be like a common humanity, like truth in comedy, like to identify something that's truthful that is also like you have experience to draw from. Yeah, like and um, empathy that you've drawn from. I whatever. always think about when I see someone do something that's wonderful on stage and it's very truthful and very funny. Is like my dad and I watching stand up when I was a kid, which I think is a very common response among people that don't necessarily do comedy that watch comedy. They do this thing where they're like that they have this thing that they say. Everybody says it, like that is so true. That is so true. I never thought about it like that. That is so true. And you hear people say this thing over and over again, and they laugh, but they thought of it, but not consciously. And like my dad would always say that when we watch stand up, like, oh God, that's so true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think that happens on stage where there's moments where an audience is like, oh my God, you, you can aim for that. And it is universal and it is resonant and it is about humanity. Okay. I have a, I have a weird comedy question, right? Sure. So my daughter is 12. Okay. That's not the question. <laughs> yes. That, yes. It's a weird yes. question because it's not a question. <laughs> the question is, so she looks at, you know, the internet and um, and she's loves memes. Yes. Memes. Sure. Okay. So memes, I understand a little bit. Um, and there's some memes that I think, like, even just like a little, you know, like not even a little uh, snippet of video, but just like like a thing that says a few words that are hysterical, right? Yes. So um, memes did not exist however many years ago, right? I mean, yes. they've been around a little while, but, you know, like... Are you talking about memes? Because <laughs> I think you're saying it wrong. Shut up. So he's really like, my, you see my face red and like, I might be wrong about this. No! Uh, but anyway, memes. Uh, no, memes. But like, so, okay. Um, I'm curious if you think, look, you look at what people like for comedy, yeah? Yeah. A little while ago, do you remember when like Tim and Eric were very big? Yes. And don't you feel like that influenced how people uh, so much, so much, so absurdity, like awkward moments, Dadaism, like, yeah, just yeah. like very absurd stuff. So then I wonder though, maybe this things not every aspect will translate, but I do wonder like some of short vines, memes, these little clips and like quick. Uh, you see it on, on Twitter. Um, this little joke, this little joke, like the, the joke structure and de- delivery, you know, it could be we, that we're missing it because we just don't care about that stuff as much. Like maybe there, maybe that's something that will influence, like you watching stand-up, oh, that's so true. The meme stuff somehow will translate into performance for people maybe. younger than us. I don't know. I mean, memes, I think memes elicit the same response. I think you read them, see your meme, and it's like, that is so true. I never right. thought about yeah, that. Yeah, no, like, you're right. That's It true, is a too. joke. I just think the difference is that it's a visual it's it's a, it's a visual gag. It's really interesting. Yeah. It's so it's odd because I just 
You, it's funny. I see. Like way. maybe we're missing it. We are fundamentally missing it. I know. Like, we as are. a man who's forty and Doug is seventy-eight, um, uh, and looks like he plays so much tennis. I think that. Um, in, do you know what VidCon is? VidCon. Okay, perfect. That's the, the exact response I wanted you to do. VidCon is like bigger than Comic Con. And it is purely a conference that is of video stars that used to do Vine oh, that are on YouTube. VidCon. VidCon. With a D. Yeah. How do you do voiceovers? You just said VidCon. You heard VidCon. <laughs> I said VidCon. How VidCon. do I do voiceovers? Of, I speak of, into a microphone. Of course I know what VidCon is. <laughs> no, you don't. You tried it. But it's an enormous thing that we have completely missed. Right. Do you know what Dramageddon is? Dramageddon, of course I know what Dramageddon it's, is. It was a huge blow up between three or four of the most prominent makeup tutorialists on YouTube. <laughs> it's enormous. Yeah, yeah. Each of them have four to six million followers and those millions of followers. I would not know about this yes. if it was not for a podcast that I listened to, yeah. which is like an old man's version of like how to get contemporary news. Oh, yeah. But, um, but yeah, there's, there's a great wealth of kids interacting with the internet and following their own comedy like people that we have no idea about. Yeah, and it's just accelerated uh, over time. I'm, I'll, it'll be interesting to see whether, like, what of it, what of it sticks. You know what I mean? Like, like you say, maybe it's the universal. Oh, that's so true. Like, I'm literally thinking. Um, I have that. What's it called? That time hop app that, like, you know, shows you like a picture from yeah. a year ago. And mine sometimes shows me tweets I had a year ago, which I got to turn that off because it's so bad. You're like, oh, why did I ever tweet that? But one of the ones that I was like, oh, I'm glad I saw this. This was just a meme. And it was a dude, um, <laughs> it's a dude, and I'm going to describe, I'm going to botch it, and but you'll go Google it, and it'll be funny to you, too. It's a thing, it's like, when my wife asks me to put something on a shelf because I'm tall, and he's going like, he's just like, looks proud. Yeah, And then yeah, on the bottom yeah. it says, when my wife asks me to get something from a shelf because t- she's too short, and he's like, no, like, <laughs> like I don't want to do it. Right. And I'm just like, that is universally weirdly true like what is that why would you be ha- like proud that you put something on a tall shelf but put out when you got to take it down yeah like, it's just a funny it is like it's odd but it made me laugh and i made me laugh seeing it again but internally you said that thing that is so true it is true and so memes are true too sometimes it's so weird um, that, that weird thing that is so true <laughs> you know in what's a weird now we're getting off topic but even like last night i because i clock it now like i pick up on it in shows like what at the longer you do shows, the more the time on stage elasticizes. Like when you're first on stage, right? You're first, you, you feel like there's like, like you're in a wind tunnel, like, what is happening? Who am I? I can't, ah! And it goes so quickly. But over time, you can become more relaxed, you're more confident, you slow down. And now, I've, like, in the past few years, like, I clock no's. I clock when my character says no. Oh, yeah. What do you mean, says no? Not no to the overall comedy, but reacts in a distinctly honest, truthful way. In a way that people would be like, I think it's a cousin to what we're talking about or a sibling to like so last night you made a move in the show where you like you said something that was like weird and off base and I, my character was like what did you say no no fucking way I won't do that yeah. and the audience laughs the audience laughs because and I think yeah. it's part and parcel with them being like that is true I would do that in this situation or at least I would want to do that thing where I would yeah. react honestly and I still made sure that I think you were handing me a medicine I shouldn't drink. I still made sure by, that, yeah. by a few moves later, I still drank the elixir that was like dangerous or, or would be hurtful to me. Like I still made sure that I yes-anded the overall, the overall move concept. for the comedy. But in the moment, a real person would be like, what are you handing me? No way am I going to um, drink this. In a way, I don't know if it's totally right, but that's what we would call framing, no? 
when you call that framing the game, or I don't know if we had a game quite, but it's like, but you're, you know, what yes. you're doing, you're reacting to an unusual thing. Yes. And a big note that I always give improv students all the time is that people mistake, uh, this is good to get back onto improv. Yeah. But, you know, is they mistake yes anding for agreeing to insane things. Yes. And so, like, an insane thing is only an insane thing if you react as if it's insane. So, yeah. So, like, a weird, someone says something weird to you. So I say, I'm a, in that one, I'm a pharmacist. And I have been uh, an elixir, and yes. I'm, I'm visualizing it in the classic cartoon way. It's uh, foam, bubbling and foaming. Is that bubbling, what you pictured? Of course, oh, of course. It's bubbling and foaming like out of a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Isn't that, I said a purple, and, uh, purple liquid in a beaker. Isn't that so funny? Oh, and it's just like yeah, yeah. you know, like uh, classic uh, witch's brew kind of oh, thing. I should have. And I, know. <laughs> yeah, I just made a gesture up. of blowing foam. Oh my gosh! And you have a mustache. You could have had that foam in your mustache. <laughs> or that improvised so foam on my mustache. <laughs> Um, uh, oh, I would have gotten such a laugh if I said, uh, you got some, a uh, little bit of I know. Uh, your upper lip. There you well, go. Man. Even at the top, okay. you second guess. <laughs> but, uh, uh, so anyway, but you were doing what many people fail to, which is to say, I said something weird. Here's this weird elixir. Yes. Uh, more, most pharmacists hand you something. They don't expect you to drink an elixir. Yeah. So you said, well, I'm not drinking this or what the yeah. hell is this? Like, which is to say you underline what's unusual about the situation. Yeah, I will, I will say. We didn't really play that game because we did a lot of weird stuff. Yeah. But like, if it was, fun. if the game was, this pharmacist is much like an ancient magician. It was a little like that. It was. Um, we could have done more stuff like that and hopefully your reaction would be similar. Like, all right, you don't want drinking uh, elixir as well. Um, here, oh, I'm going to... or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, my raven will tell you what the... Yeah, yeah or great. whatever it is. So. Well, I mean, yeah, maybe this is helpful at the very end of the podcast if they give you two little <laughs> techniques to <laughs> circle back. So how do you but get to improv? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think, um, I think what's helpful to what we're talking about is, yes, framing. And framing you can think of, I think, oftentimes to treat in a realistic way. There is, there is one small alteration to the way that you interact in improv, apart from it being compressed interaction and being very fast, mm-hmm. is that... If you want to frame something or you want to react in a way that is truthful and elicits from the audience is you just you speak your subtext and it's a mm-hmm. small it's a small modification from what you do in real life because in real life you do swallow a lot of stuff and you do acquiesce and you go along with what could happen but from time to time you do like be, you will say something like you're acting a little bit weird right. like you you're doing something strange or like you will be slightly confrontational not in a mean way but especially with people that you're close to, your friends, your family, which is why I think we're always encouraged like to know the person you're in a scene with. Sure. But those moments in improv when you speak the subtext of the character, even if it's just like something like, I don't you're know making me uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, like I don't like this. Gets a laugh from the audience and identifies what could be unusual and is truthful. I think that's helpful. And then a very, very practical way, if this is helpful to you, if you're playing the straight person in the scene, if you're playing the person that grounds and reacts, like just say no twice and then say yes. <laughs> Is really just the most practical oh, yeah. way that someone's like, here's this weird thing that I'm doing. You're like, what are you doing? No, thanks. I'm doing this weird thing. Uh, I don't know. I'm doing this weird thing. All right. All right. <laughs> and if you can find a way to justify you would, why you would go along, great. But, like, you never want to say no more than twice in a scene. Like, you just, people want to <laughs> That's see. interesting. I, that's a very good way to put it. Yes. Yeah. Like, because I think that doing I- improvising, <laughs> there's a very... But do you worry? I mean, you said, what, never say no more than twice? Yeah. That's a good note. But I worry that, I worry students would just take that as a rule. I mean, maybe the rule is good enough that it works mostly. I think as a, yeah, as a, I mean, also look yeah. for ways to justify, but to be on board because yeah. every time you offer, here's the thing, every time an unusual or funny thing is offered on stage, the audience, whether they know it or not, wants to see that thing. 
you've given them a promise to see something. It's almost yes. like, you know, Chekhov's gun. If a gun is introduced in the first act, it has to be fired by the third act, yeah, famously. That's okay. Chekhov's gun. It's like anytime you make a behavioral promise, like, well, this is a thing that's coming up. This is a thing that's <laughs> happening. The audience keys in on that, whether they know it or not. They're like, oh, that's funny. That's funny. If you don't yes. fulfill that promise somehow, if you don't get to that active behavior by the end of the scene, there's a dissatisfaction between the players and the audience. It's just sort of left dangling. And so you ha- your goal is, even when you're playing a straight person, I think, is to like, you're both, both players are trying to facilitate the funny. We both want to make this thing happen that we promised, this behavior that could happen, this elixir that we're supposed to drink that could be poisonous, that could be dangerous. <laughs> we've dangled it in front of the audience and now we have to, we have to reel it in right. to mix metaphors. And you have to do that thing. Hopefully you get there by being justified and grounded and you earn it. Uh-huh. Right by being like, I'm not going to do this. Okay, I promised myself that I would be more adventurous. I will finally do this. <laughs> Getting there somehow. Yeah, or anyway, I have this rash, and he's the only one open. Exactly. That was like the justification last yeah. night. Yeah. Or like, I think I said my health insurance isn't great. Oh, we moved. I was saying it as we moved into another scene, but I had a justification. Like, my this is the only health insurance I have. I'm going to do this yeah. as best I can to get to that point. The rewards that allows the, the, the audience to see that behavior. Like, yeah, it's I'll- your goal to move to that thing, to move towards the funny thing together. And uh, and action and um, weird, dangerous things. Because I think that's the other thing is like as a person, your lizard brain, as a performer, you don't want to do things that you're not sure how what the outcome will be. Yeah, that feel dangerous. Yeah, and uh, improv starts to train you to do those things. Yes, not really do those things, but do them within the safety of scenes. Yes, um, but I'll often say to students, you know, talking to your promise uh, idea people will say uh, it'll be a, a long scene about two people about to jump out of an airplane yeah and I'm often like what do I want to see a scene about people about to jump out of an airplane or people jumping out of an airplane why is it always airplanes well it is a very, that's a very... dangerous thing that everyone knows about but you know like like many things like that it's like do I want to see the guy who never, um, you know... But I'm saying I've seen that scene a million times and I give the exact same no. It's just like, get out, let the scene get out in front of you. Well, because they're not sure how to do the airplane part where they're going to fall out and they think then the scene will be over and it will, but eventually. They'll probably fall through the air if they know how to do that well, it'll be funny. Sure. But, they, but they're worried. They're worried. Yeah. And it's weird. I wonder if they are worried. It's not that they have kitted themselves into believing they're actually in an airplane and in any danger, but it's a... Um, they have to kind of, there's a danger involved in the unknown of what will be. Yes. And it's easier to talk. You, yes. know, you know from talking. Well, it is always easier to talk. <laughs> it's easier to talk about things than do. And uh, doing an improv actually requires you to move around, as we know. Like, Ben and I stand around and talk a lot. But, um, <laughs> yeah. but we remind ourselves, too, right before our show last night, we were like, let's Maybe. make sure we move around. I we mean, had a nice I don't know sword if we fight did. at one point. Yeah, we had a little sword fight. But, like, you know, you have to remind yourself to do things. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, we cool. just went on a tear. No, yeah, no, it's good. The more improv talk, the the better. <laughs> yeah. Is there any way, anything that you would say, like, specifically, either when you guys work together or individually, that is kind of like your own style or, or way that you approach it that's maybe different than, than how it's taught at UCB? Or... <laughs> I mean, I do think that... Uh, overall philosophies. I cut to playing darts a lot. I've been doing that lately. I'm like a dumb. You think player. that's a distinction? I think I, mean, I, I think I need to stop doing. It. I play a lot of darts too. You do. So play you're darts. not that different. Yeah. Me. I do that actually in our shows now as kind of a joke to myself. <laughs> yeah. Is we have scenes where it'd be like a lot of scenes that cut to like us talking about the scene from before. Like yeah. it'd be like a bad day and be like 
No, she sounds like she was okay. He's been giving her a chance, you know, like where it's just like going to cut to him with his friends later. Yeah. And so I, I do it as a little bit of a yes. joke to myself yes. to go back to throwing darts. Yes. Um, yes. And, uh, and I feel like recently, was it you, somebody, somebody said, oh, it was this... Did he say that we each had our own dark I board? I did do that, yeah. Right. <laughs> because everyone so was lined up in a weird way. And so not only were we playing darts in a ridiculous way, but we were also, like, everybody had yeah, their own dark board. Like a group game that we Yeah, that was pretty dumb. Um, but then uh, overall, I think my philosophy is just to, to sort of dovetail what we were talking about before. It's just, like, behavior is paramount. Like, get to behavior. People come to see these shows because it is a theatrical medium. They want to see people move. They want to see people do the thing. Like, to talk about, like, Buster Keaton, like you were before, Charlie Chaplin, is like, there's a reason why that's satisfying to people in, like, a way that stands the test of time 100 years later, close to 100 years later. Those were not, you know, there were silent films that were pure, or even, like, the Three Stooges. Like, I love the Stooges, and, like, there were pure physicality. I think whatever it is that you have in a scene, not that it has to be, like, physical comedy necessarily in the way that you're, like, hurting yourself for pratfalls, but they want to see the, the behavior go through. They want to see you jump out of the plane. They want to see you get to the point where you are demonstrating something on stage. You're making, making the, the, the funny thing, you know, at UCP we call it the game of the scene. Making it actionable. Making it, making it behavioral. I think that that is a universal thing that I push towards that is across all theaters. Like you can play game in a lot of ways. Most of the time I think it's people when they're developing to it in a talky way. But in a show... Say, if someone is in a scene and talking about something, I might tag out to get us to a point, stylistically, where we're doing the, the behavior that was promised in the scene. So maybe maybe that's sort of like my own little stylistic bent, is that I want us to get to a place where we're doing it, in the scene, or cutting to the scene, or tagging into this. Yeah. I think Ben is good at that. Um, and he's great at tennis and crosswords, too. <laughs> um, well, anyway, history. but I... Uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, what's different about me than other improvisers, it's a little tough for me to say. I do think that um, as a teacher, I'm very conscious about game and I teach about game and I can spot game and talk about it a lot. When I'm playing, I don't think I'm good at that. I probably, If I'm good at it, it's all muscle memory. And what I work on, or I don't even work on it, but what, I, what I've, I'm not even sure this is good, but my current mode, I feel like, is trying to find surprise Yes. And and so I don't uh, I'm not sure that's always helpful actually, but it's helpful when you have people that can that can like make it good. <laughs> so I'm I'm lucky in my show. You know I've Ben and Molly Thomas and uh, rotating cast of other people that are great. And so some of what I have fun with is finding surprising moments. I was telling Ben Ben wasn't at our show on Wednesday because uh, he was in Los Angeles. I was in LA. He was in LA <laughs> booking something. Shooting. I had booked it. Um, he had booked it, and he was booking other things while he's there. Um, but anyway, we had a show, and there were a couple surprising moments. And I've been doing this a long time, so I don't know if this will translate to uh, the podcast medium. Put it in a meme. I'll put it later. in a meme later. But basically, the what had happened was I was in a scene with four people who were my defense lawyers, or they were um, they were my defense lawyers. They were my lawyers. Uh, I was in a situation where I was trying to, they were trying to get me to talk about a good deed so I wouldn't have to pay so much al- uh, not alimony. Alimony, is that right? I don't know. Defense? Uh, whatever, yeah, I had to pay money and they wanted to make, make me a good guy. Uh, so I was trying to describe a good deed I had done. And so I decided in that moment that the good deed was not going to be a very good deed. I wasn't a good person so as a character. So 
I was just going to describe something. It was not much of a good deed, but I either cut us to this scene or I was cut there. And I was telling um, Ryan Carls, this other improviser, uh, his character is saying, don't buy these crumpets at Trader Joe's because they tend to go moldy. And that's all I wanted to say um, as my, quote, good deed, which is, uh, that's not much of a good deed, but that was the point. And as I was doing so, I said this thing uh, to Ryan, and um, and I meant to just cut right back. But at that moment, uh, Molly walked in to the scene and um, started to say something. <laughs> and um, and I decided in a split step, I didn't really decide, I just did. I was like working. Uh, I just cut us back. And Molly, I was awkward, sufficiently awkward, that uh, when we got back to the scene... With everyone, the defense lawyers. Well, yeah, to the defense lawyers scene. Everyone was like, what just happened? Like, Molly was in mid-sentence, perhaps, <laughs> and Doug just got us out of that scene. Like, it was, if it was not a couple people that know each other pretty well, it probably would have seemed very, like... Um, or if, But Molly made a move, you said, So right? then Molly, so then, like, it was just odd. Like, it was all my fault. But then where Molly said, Molly, I started saying, so that was my good deed or whatever back in this defense lawyer scene. And Molly, as one of the lawyers, says, wait a minute, you just mentioned this woman in your story <laughs> that she came in and she started to say something and you didn't let her finish. What was with that? Like, and so she sort of called this awkward improv moment out in this way that was really funny because because <laughs> I just fucked up the move. Yeah. And, uh, and Molly is good at like calling weird things out like that. And then we had another moment in that same show where uh, Ryan was being my father in a flashback, you know, mm-hmm. as, and but he was kind of an abusive father in this cutlery shop we worked in. And uh, and <laughs> then and, so, and part of it, he starts to get sweet. You know, he's like, just now, son, you know, you know that I'm not such a... And I said to him, uh, and so this is just me patting myself on the back for a good move. But I said, I said, don't try to make yourself sympathetic in my memory. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. So, but that just kind of came out. But I was like, I don't think I've ever done that before. Yeah. Where these cut to scene is definitely my character's memory about something. Yeah. But then I made it sort of self-aware just that Ryan's move was, yeah, it was a little dash of meta. Um, I think you're also, things are fun. I think you're also very, very adept at character in particular. And you play high status great, but low status. I don't think anybody... Low status, I think, is an unsung hero that a lot of people don't do. But you do low status That's very, very well. That's the nature of being well. low status. Your unsung. <laughs> it's true. It's but true. I love low status Yeah, characters. and you do it so well. Bob, well. Do you know Bob Dassey? He's in... I know of Bob Dassey. Did you Dassie. see him when you were in L.A.? <laughs> we had lunch. Kidding. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, he's a wonderful improviser. And I took a workshop from him one time. And so I don't know him well at all, but I remember him saying stuff about, like, lose the argument. Like, that's a really funny improv move. And, oh, yeah. In, and it stuck with me because in real that's life, funny. people yeah, hate to lose arguments. And so you see scenes that are so fucking frustrating only because people in real life want to win the argument. Yeah. And it would be so much funnier to say, hey, man, you ate my ham sandwich. It was in the fridge. That was my sandwich. And you, and everyone wants to say, I didn't eat your sandwich. Right? Yeah. Boring scene a million times. Yeah. But you could have said... Yeah, look, I'm so sorry. I was so hungry. Yeah, I know. And I, yeah. <laughs> admit blame, lose the argument. Yeah, you know, I mean, like, yeah, look, so I'll make you a sandwich great. right now. What no. do you want? You know, like it just would be so funny because people in real life always try not to. I, I think of it as like I. That's so funny that he said that. Like, I'm going to use that, but I think of it as like outsad yourself. Yeah, like just go down and just get a sad and just take your lumps like a little turd take your lumps. and just go and like I ate it and I felt really guilty and I'll buy in I'll buy a new one I just if I had money I'd if I it. I had money I can go I can get you know what I mean just like yeah. that anyway all right yeah awesome let's wrap it up there. <laughs>